Good morning. On Wednesday, the doll returned, and with it, a protest. Starting with Dublin City and both Kildare Street and Marion Square West are still closed due to an ongoing demonstration. And while protests are not unusual, especially on the first day back, this one involved abuse and insults for all politicians, including a mock gallows. Here is political correspondent Michal Lahan. As they made their way up the streets to Leinster House in the beginning, uh, with that noose, they, they chanted, you'll never beat the Irish. Uh, they also had posters uh, talking about corruption, posters saying uh, things like Ireland is for the Irish. The, that was something that was repeated a lot. Also, transgender issues were raised among the crowd. But if you're looking for some central tone, something that would tell you at a glance what this was all about, that wasn't clear at all. It was about shouting people down primarily, about making it particularly difficult for them to get to and from work. And I suppose in any context, that is something that will be deemed unacceptable. But I suppose even more so when it comes to people trying to get to the National Parliament, it is something fairly sacrosanct in any Mm -hmm. democracy that politicians can do that. And I suppose it's something that has been protected here even through very dark days from the civil war on. From Thursday's Morning Ireland and in the middle of that protest independent TD for Kerry Michael Healy Ray. He had to be escorted down Kildare Street by Gardaí as did his young intern from the USA. He spoke to Anya. As you say, protests outside the Dáil are common, uh, particularly when it comes back after a break. You yourselves, wasn't there a famous occasion you were on top of a car or there was music? So what was different about yesterday and what's your sense of what those protesters were angry about or wanted? Well, this is the funny thing. Everybody is saying, what exactly were they protesting about? Because all I saw was people jumping up and down using horrible bad language that should not be used in any form of protest. And there was no coherent message from them. It was like a gathering of people who just wanted to insult and this thing of uh, mock effigies of people being hanged and things. I mean, that's outrageous behaviour. And then the Gardaí were subjected to abuse, to language, to things being thrown at them. I mean, that's not right. Our guards are there to do a job for all of us. And, and I want to thank the Gardaí for, for the efforts that they made yesterday. But I mean, it's wrong that anybody doing their work should have to put up with that type of nonsense. If they want to come and make a message, that's fine. But everybody's scratching their heads and saying, what exactly was their message? So whatever they did want to do, they didn't exactly do it very effectively because government don't know what they wanted, what they were there for or what was their call yesterday, because they actually didn't make a call. All they did was let themselves and their families down. Nevertheless, the right to protest, fundamental to our democracy. But where to draw the line? With Clare later, Finnegale Senator Barry Ward, who's written to guard the Commissioner Drew Harris, warning that the force risked having its credibility, in his words, substantially eroded if it did not take action. What do you want? What do you want the Garda Commissioner to do? Well, I, what I think is really important is the, because the Garda again are exceptional, almost in in the world, in the way that they are respected and work with the community. They are loved by people because they exercise discretion and they're not heavy handed. But 
when you ex- exercise reason with people on the street, that's one thing. There are certain groups who will not respond to reason. And the people we saw misbehaving outside Leinster House yesterday are not reasonable, are not rational and will not respond to that. And the individual guards who were outside Leinster House yesterday were in an invidious position. Although there were many of them, they were not equipped, for example, to 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 really suppress the, the, the activity that was going on. The Guardian need to be ready to do that. And the reason I wrote to the Commissioner is that that is something that comes from the top down. They need to equip the Guardian. They need to, to make sure the resources are there for them. But they also need, when the time comes, to step in and take the action that is required to send out the message that it will not so be what And it must be said, although disruptive, it really was a small crowd of people, about 200 or so. So how concerned should we be and what is the best approach? Rachel put this to Dr Kean O'Croher, Assistant Professor of Criminal Justice at Maynooth University. At the heart of this, Kean O'Croher, are a hard core of people, really. We're not talking about a huge number of people who turn up regularly all over the country, even when they're not wanted. So how can situations like this be policed? Yeah, it's a very, a very good question. Um, in terms of managing, especially when they're dispersed throughout the country and they're targeting areas that are a bit more rural, uh, it can be a tricky thing. Public order policing is, is quite challenging at the best of times, uh, but particularly when they're strategically, when the far right have moved out of the major urban centres into smaller rural villages and towns across the country, uh, that makes it more challenging to police because uh, policing are less, is less present. The main way to target this is better intelligence gathering. Uh, by policing, uh, by Angarda Shirkana. And unfortunately, uh, what we've seen over the last couple of years is, and this is a common theme in policing across the globe, is downplaying the significance of the threat of the far right. Uh, we've, you know, it's been observed historically in the US and the UK and across Europe. Threats from emerging threats from the far right are rarely recognised as a serious threat until often and even after there's been a serious violent incident. Uh, so I think the problem here, um, specifically with Angarda Shikana, up until very recently they were saying, well initially they were saying there isn't a problem with the far right in Ireland and then recently they were saying, oh if there was a problem it's kind of petered out or died down. And again I think what, what what's at the root of this is a cultural issue within policing generally uh, which is a failure to acknowledge and recognise the serious threats posed by the fire right. From Morning Ireland yesterday. And although rattled, the politicians were indeed back and Leinster House continued with the business of politics and democracy. With Sarah on drive time, policy and practice and what could be termed a difference of opinion. Minister of State for European Affairs Fine Gael's Peter Burke and Sinn Féin's finance spokesperson Pierce Darty. For the opening question, Sarah came out swinging. Uh, Minister, I might come to yourself first and the doll hasn't sat for 20 weeks. It's opening today on a Wednesday, halfway through the week. It's two o'clock that it opens and no sign of the Taoiseach, the Taoiseach or the Minister for Health in the middle of a massive health scandal. Where is everyone? Well, I think uh, people are very much aware that the majority of your work actually isn't inside the doll chamber, sitting there listening to debates. It's out where you follow your work. And obviously the Taoiseach and the Taunashta are doing very important work over in the UN General, General Assembly. Uh, you spoke there in terms of your news bulletin, how important it is in relation to Northern Ireland and the legacy bill and the talks that are going on over there with the, UN, with the US administration, but also meeting people in like-minded countries, which is critical for the business of politics. So they're doing exceptional work for our country. I think that has to be said. Now that was the start, but as the interview progressed, the two men clashed. Oh boy, did they clash. Specifically on the issue of increasing mortgage interest rates, inflation and the possibility of relief for mortgage holders. 
we have spoken to economists on this programme who have said the worst thing you could possibly do is come along and basically undo the work of the ECB, which, which we all know has been painful for everybody who has a mortgage. It's been very painful, but there's a reason behind it. So if you undo that work, then you're risking undoing the work of the ECB in terms of fighting inflation. Well, first of all, we're not undoing the work of the ECB because the ECB's interest rate increases applies across many, many different ways that money flows into the economy in terms of business supports, new lending and all of the rest. We're talking about people who have mortgages out, who are existing mortgages. Indeed, Sarah, the central bank governor, who's a member of the ECB Governing Council who makes these decisions, actually just in the Finance Committee earlier on today, said it all depends how the interest rate relief is actually applied and how it is designed. So in principle, it's not that you're completely opposed to it. It's actually how it is designed. And that's why we're saying it should be targeted, it should have caps. And listen, the fact that government don't have a proposal at this late stage, when people have been suffering over the last uh, year as a result of increased mortgages, Well, you don't know they don't have a proposal. They don't have a proposal. Well, the budget's in three weeks. I I assume if they have something, they're going to announce it then. But but Sarah, people have seen these increases already. We're in the middle of a cost of living crisis and nothing has come forward from the government. And that's not acceptable. Last year, I said to the government, this is my proposal. Briefly to respond to yeah. that, I just want to it, move it, on it, to it, one or two be other great. things. It'd be great if I could. First of all, Pierce speaks about 10 months. Each of those 10 months, government has been actively intervening, supporting people through the cost of living. We saw 12 billion euro put into the economy. So I think it's incredible to hear a Sinn Féin politician coming on here saying government has not taken action. We've taken action in primary school books, childcare, energy rebates. We have interest. nothing of interest. Nothing we've of mortgage interest, Peter. Nothing of mortgage interest. Pierce, we've heard enough from you to be fair over the last 10 minutes telling us how you're going to destroy our economy, telling us how you're going to really run roughshod over prudent spending. What we've done... But that turn of phrase... Destroy our economy. Yes, that one. A step too far, perhaps. In each of those measures Peter, that he hasn't I said anything Peter. about destroying the economy. He has. He what, has is, exactly. what has he said about destroying well, the economy? Well, the first of all, he speaks about increasing the bank levy. He mentioned there's three banks in Ireland now. Do we realise a couple of years ago there was over a dozen financial institutions uh, in Ireland? It's because we have a less competitive marketplace that we're working on now. And because of uh, policies that Sinn Féin are espousing would really destroy our economy, an economy oh, that is seriously, Sarah, employed in it currently. Okay, Pierce, an increased bank levy could risk destroying the economy. Hang on, let me come in on Secondly, how we... No, go on, sorry, no, that's a pretty serious charge, Peter, if you don't mind. I have to let Pierce back in. No, no, hold on, I have to let Pierce back in on a charge. Is going to destroy. Because well, it's not, to speak it's, there for it's 10 not, minutes. I have not allowed him to speak. I've been speaking you to have. both of you for 10 minutes. Um, but you've, you've, you've accused him of destroying the economy or putting forward plans to destroy the economy. If you let me put the charge to him, it'd be helpful if you let me put go the on, charge quickly, to him. Go he on, quickly. He wanted to bring in a Liz Truss style uh, energy cap that ended in February, that ended in the middle of the cost of living crisis and better economy like the Tories did. He espoused that. It wouldn't help schools, it mm-hmm. wouldn't help businesses. Government were very targeted and we can him and haw on how we like but government did targeted interventions and it put £12 billion right. into the economy and protected the most All right, Pierce, very briefly, please. Go on. Listen, this is desperate stuff and if this is what Fine Gael are bringing to the doll as we come back after the summer recess. God help the people of Ireland because we are in serious problems. And if, Peter, as Minister, if this is what you're on about, scaremongering, that we're going to just... Listen to what, what you said. Facts, that, listen it to what facts. you said. You I didn't interrupt. Listen cap. to what you said. That, you Sinn Féin, that Sinn Féin would destroy the economy by asking, by asking the banks to pay an, an, an increased levy. I never said the that. Banks, I never the banks... Said, I did the not banks, right, all right, stop interrupting. The banks' the profits went from £2 billion last year to £5.1 billion this year and used cut and we have tax, only three banks. And you cut the country. tax that they have to pay in half. In half. Listen, 
appropriate we taxation did not put is the tax important. They had to pay. We are very clear, Peter. We stand on the side of you're, ordinary you're families, the All right, Peter, ordinary families and energy hard-pressed energy workers. We want to support them in terms of... Gentlemen, I'm just going to stop the two of you. This is nonsense. Peter and Peter and Pierce, both of you stop, please, for a second, because nobody can hear a thing when you're talking over each other like that. I think we get the we get the message on, on both the points you want to make. Uh, Pierce, I want to ask you very briefly... The Sarah shut down. They will not be trying that one again in a hurry. After all that, let us turn to Arena. On Wednesday evening, they brought us this from Limerick rapper Strange Boy with vocals from Moya Brennan. Beginnings by Strange Boy featuring vocals from Moya Brennan. All on Arena. Back in a bit. Welcome back. On Liveline, another week, another scam. This time, an investment opportunity. It starts with an email from a man claiming to be a senior executive at one of the country's biggest and best-known banks. Now, this scammer uses a man's real name and his real job title. So, if you did get suspicious, you could stick these details into Google. First thing that would pop up, this man's genuine LinkedIn profile. And there was an Irish landline number. Crafty. But they didn't reckon on the Duffy. This was how it started. How are you? Yeah, great, great. How are you? Not too bad at all. That's good. I'm just, as one of my buddies who, now I, I want to say at the outset, John, um, I be, my maximum would be your minimum. Do you know what I mean? What I'm thinking of, okay. it would be 10K rather than one of my buddies and I was... To be honest is, with you, what we like about this is the fact that it pays a good percentage, yeah. but it is open to all avenues. So if you're a guy that's got 10K or a guy that's got yeah. 100 or a guy that wants to do 10 lots of 100, it, it, it covers all, um, all all people. It's not just for the guy with the big money that can make the higher percentage in this. Everyone can. Okay, now I'd love to put in more because the percentage is... is, is uh, Attractive. It's not massive, but it's attractive in, in oh, the current in the, in the current atmosphere. Uh, John. And, You're and, exactly right there. You know, g- going back a few years, we yeah. would have tripled that. But yeah, of course, course. <laughs> in this day and age, um, to make four, five plus is a, is a great bonus. Sounds good. And he said the investment came under the deposit guarantee scheme, some minimum risk. The bonds are triple. Well, they're, they're as you said, they're fairly guaranteed. They're fairly guaranteed, aren't they? Well, I mean, if you're looking at an Irish government treasury bond, yeah. never in the history yeah. has I, of the Irish government ever defaulted on one of their bonds. Okay. And I don't see it happening anytime soon, um, or if, if at all. Uh, but he, like I say, even if it did, your 10000 is covered. Um, the only thing you've got there is obviously the interest on it, 5.72%. Yeah. Um, we do take uh, 0.2%. As a commission, because it's not an AIB bond, so you you get five point five two. That's 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 a that's it. That's exactly. And because he's a pro, Joe threw in this very plausible nugget. I don't know whether you have children or not, John, but I have. How soon after? And one of them is thinking of getting married next year. How how soon can I take the money out? You've got if, to keep it there for a minimum of twelve months to to okay. be 
um, to be able to obtain the interest. Um, any, you, you can keep, obviously, if you put it down to end of term, uh, mm. which is obviously July 2027, that doesn't yeah. mean you have to keep it till then. Uh, as long as you keep it for a minimum of 12 months, you can withdraw any, uh, any part of it after that. And am I penalised? No, after Great. 12 months, Great. not at oh. all. And then the all-important time pressure. you got to move fast. You wouldn't want to miss this one. Now, there is a date. It's a bit of a ticking clock, is there? What is the closing date of the 30th of, um, the, of this month? the end of the month. Yeah. Yes. Well, today is the 20th, so I have 10 days, basically. Correct. The, till, till, you've got till next weekend, okay. next Saturday. Uh, so the end of next week. That's, uh, that's just to get your application in. Okay. Obviously, if we have your application before then and your payment come after that, that's also not a problem, as long as we can allocate what we've got there. Because as okay. you can imagine, it's not a new bond. Yeah, uh, a brand course. new treasury yeah, bond yeah. would pay you about 3%. So yeah, we only have yeah. a certain amount of it yeah, that, of that we're able to offer. And we invigor by that date, uh, we won't have any less. Now, I know you, you probably can't tell me this because of client confidentiality and AIB. John, but um, is, is there much interest in it? Should I get the... Massive, massive interest. Wow. Well, we, we, we obviously, we emailed out to everyone um, on this and mm. we're, having, we're having a hard time. The team that deals with this are having a hard time getting back in contact with everyone. Of course, yeah. Uh, but emailing in or requesting phone calls, um, it's, it's a lot more than expected, put it that way. Okay, so you'll email that to me ASAP? I'll email, I'll email you the application okay. form in the next half an hour. And then, like a spider with a fly, Joe attacks. Um, how long have, have you been with AOB long, John? Me? Yes, many years. Okay, okay. And where are you based? Dublin. Oh, okay, because I know AB. Uh, John, John, you know there is, you know, you're impersonating somebody who is working in AIB. Huh? You're impersonating somebody who is. You know, you know, you're a, a scam artist, aren't you, John? Hello, John. I've no idea what you're talking about. Ah, come on, John. I'm not. A, I didn't. I didn't come up to Liffy on a donut. This is a scam. This is well, a scam. Not, I don't know quite. That. You're, you're rumbled. You're rumbled, man. Rumbled. And not not only not only are you trying to scam people, John, but you're actually taking the good name of a very reputable employee in AIB and using it, aren't you? Okay, again, you've you've lost me. No, you've unfortunately you've lost a lot of people, a lot of money by this scam. But he just admit it's a well, scam, I, John, even for your conscience. Well, there's there's nothing to admit here. There is. Should they should they email? Well, there I mean, the email again, if you want to ah, John, come on, come on, come on, come on. John, John, the the There's John gone. Never to return. How satisfying was that? Lifeline. On Sunday, Continental Rifts conversations with Europe at its heart. Two people on culture, travel and their lives. In this instance, architect Andrew Clancy and actor Killian Murphy. Now they've been friends for a while, but in their 20s it was a time for wandering. Here's Killian Murphy. It's really interesting listening to you because I think that time in your 20s, when you are slightly, slightly aimless or between things is one of the most important times I think in your life because you do all of that preparation for mm. what you're going to become. I think you called it slow thinking and, and I did an awful lot of slow thinking. And in Bragg in the late 90s, an experiment that would sow the seeds for his future. 
I went there with a friend from school. We had, it was outrageously tiny budget. Again, we were camping, but everything was so cheap. Do you remember? Like yeah, it's like 10p. For yeah. We were at one point, we found this woman who sold like these very, very life-like leg text masks of old men. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we bought two of these masks and we spent the whole holiday walking around Prague in character. We developed these characters with these masks on. Like, I mean, all of the time. <laughs> Going to nightclubs, showering at the campsite in the masks, you know, getting on the, the buses and the trains, just walking around. It, it was like some sort of possession. But it was, again, it was this, that thing you will only do abroad as a youngster. You, you know, you would never have done that at home in Cork City. And for me, or if I think back, I was just developing how to be, how to create character, how to do, how to be performative. And, I, you know, I didn't really understand the whole thing about masks or anything like that. But it was a lesson that we were just, you know, grappling with or kind of struggling with as kids, as gas. But that's a beautiful story. I mean, how did you sleep in a mask? When we we took them off. <laughs> <laughs> like, but uh, isn't that what we do, though, when we travel? Sometimes we take off masks and sometimes yeah. we put them on. And There you go. And for Andrew Clancy, he was living in Paris. Just not sure what he was doing there. I was terribly alone and terribly clear that this had to look like a success from the outside. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I really felt I was treading water, but I wasn't now in retrospect. Like I was doing a lot of reading about process, about writers' yeah. processes in particular. Architects are terrible at talking about process. We mythologise a lot. Yeah. And I found a lot in their works there that I found very valuable. And I was doing a bit of writing myself, terrible short stories, but then also trying to work out things about architecture because I was also trying to draw these first few buildings that yeah. we were doing. And we were hitting all kinds of roadblocks because the orthodoxies that we'd been taught turned out to be complete fabrications. But one day and one particularly badly designed building has stayed with him. I guess it was late autumn and the Bibliothèque Nationale is like a failed building, Grand Projet, Mitterrand, you know. Four towers at the corners shaped like books open and the books were going to go in there, you know. And then there was a courtyard down below for the staff. But of course, you can't put books in towers because the light and the heat. So they put the books in the courtyard and the staff in the towers so they have to walk a kilometre for a feckin' meeting. And then the books are in this courtyard and there was supposed to be this pine forest in the middle. But of course, the beetles that live on the pine forest eat books. (laughs) So they had to seal the courtyard. So this pine forest you couldn't get to a courtyard that didn't work, yeah. towers that were there for no reason, all the failures and hubris of architecture. And it just somehow it worked. And I remember one day I went looking for Beckett and looked in the Irish section and the English section. He wasn't there and talked to somebody. And of course, he was in the French section. Interesting. And I remember taking that, like there's a hole, there's shelves and shelves of Beckett there. Mm. Then kind of sitting on the terrace overlooking the courtyard with one of the books I was looking at and uh, that evening. And it was just amazing. It was like... Because the trees are isolated, all the starlings in that part of Paris just come in in vast, collapsing murmurations, like, oh. a, like a fingerprint breathing in on itself or something <laughs> yeah. and nesting in the tree. And it was the most surreal and the most strange and the most sighted I'd felt in Paris yeah. in this failure of a building, reading a book by a French Irishman and lost and found. Do you know what I mean? And they spoke about how creativity emerges from conversation, whether that's a design for a building or a role on stage. Conversations are brilliant because you never know where they're going to go. Mm-hmm. Whereas an argument is terrible because it's about neither person shifting position at all. Yeah. 
And so a conversation is new knowledge fundamentally and any creative act then can be a conversation and architecture in particular because certainty is the least useful thing to an architect. Yeah. You make the thing to be more intelligent than yourself. Yeah. If it was the other way around, then sure, you just write it all down while yeah. you make the thing. So I think there's something about that which I found was liberated in that. And I think it wasn't possible for us to have developed that form of thinking without this relationship with other places. I mean, it's interesting because in your work, those conversations which have blossomed into into works, that seems to have been forged elsewhere too or in conversation elsewhere in other places. I would agree with almost all of that. And I think particularly when you're trying to make a new work, it, it's it's all about the unknown and the sort of ambiguity and the nuance and this trying to distill ideas. There's certainty as your enemy. Mm. I enjoy that, particularly in theatre, that rehearsal process and just talking and finding things. It's my favourite part of the whole work. Mm. Even I, I enjoy it more than the actual performance, <laughs> which I shouldn't say, but I, it's, it's like a laboratory. Yeah. And then when you find the work and you put it up on your feet, then you're sustaining something. The, the sort of exploration part is finished. Do you know? I mean, it keeps evolving, but but it has to remain within the parameters of what you've built, I suppose. But the actual coming into a into a rehearsal room with nothing, just the script and some maybe a bit of tape on the floor, like that is extremely exciting. And again, and I do think that that comes back from having achieved some level of confidence in your taste or your approach or your process as a younger individual, and that seems for us to have involved a lot of travelling. Makes you just want to head off with no plan at all. Architect Andrew Clancy, actor Killian Murphy on Continental Riffs. Oh, and by the way, Barry's doffed to the French postal system. I remember being in the campsite in Avignon and I had got the part in Disco Pigs, this play that Ender Walsh wrote, yeah. which was my first ever job, and he posted me the play to the tent. And it actually arrived into the tent. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Gas. How, how do you even post to a tent? I guess they posted to the campsite and the lads knew us as the fellas with the bedraggled tent with the piece of cheese, <laughs> same piece of cheese at the bottom of the tent for three weeks. Following the palm. Now this week, half of RTE seemed to be down in Rathaniska. Yep, that time of year again. We've been watching videos from the site and it is mucky. Um, and luckily I do have a pair of wellies from a few years ago. Somebody gifted me a pair. I better, gee, I better write that, that down the list. There was the two donuts and then there was the, the wellies. Because you, you have to declare everything now. So I'll have to declare the wellies. There were good, good wellies too. Put them in the ledger, eh? Too soon for joshing. But it was indeed the ploughing. When Dublin 4 gets to observe the culture in their natural habitat. Aren't they lovely? Earthy. And an excuse to do this. Pigs are top of the loudest farm animal chart. They're hugging the limelight. Hey, hey, but um, number five, cows. Cows, there you go. There you go. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. They're at number five. Bison are the same loudness, 80 decibels. At number three, it's roosters. They're at number two, actually, as it happens. And at number one, the loudest farm, farm animal. How, what, would you guess it? Would you, I wouldn't have guessed this at all. At number one, the loudest farm animal. Pigs. And then you had an excited rooster. Over here, yeah, there you go. 
a couple of cows, yeah, and the sheep there. There you go, there you go. It's, it's all going to be crazy, isn't it? <laughs> Stop! Stop! So reductionist. And as anyone who has ever been to the ploughing knows, it is about the future of farming in this country. Fertiliser, fencing, robotic milking systems, high-tech combine harvesters. But it's also about the freebie. With the glad eye and a hefty sack for the filling, Shane Daniel Byrne worked the plow moss. Hashtag gifted. And I did, I thought this was a myth for a while, but yes. I did do good. So the best one is uh, Engineers Ireland, who are hashtag engineering our future. They gave me uh, ice cream that was handed to me by a robot. But I did skip the queue in front of a child, which felt really strange. But look, yeah. this is showbiz. I got a Shikana, I got an air freshener for the car. Right. Everybody, okay. the hot ticket at the moment is the little things that go in your trolley in the supermarket. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So I have one of them from... <laughs> from the Department of Public Prosecutions right <laughs> they're a big representation here and they're, they're great and I love them uh, Wind Energy they gave me some as well Sport Aaron and then the Sod Pod which I believe is a podcast by Grassland Agro about Sod right <laughs> Tell you, it's all go pins from all those places and also the guy I have to say Grassland I grow the guy from there gave me a bit of muck and grass so I have that here he actually yes and he told me they do step four is solvita and that's soil biological assessment they're the only ones doing that Ray there, you know what nobody they, else doing that that's the, brand new and they have a magazine told me as well and even mental health in that and everything do you know the provenance of that muck did, did it come from I here know, or is it it's very sustainable it actually looks like a bit of there muck to me program yeah, from yeah, Grassland yeah, yeah, yeah. well you do have to kind of Ask. They're, see, they're very crafty. You can't. It's not like you can just walk up and take stuff. You have to talk to a person briefly. Yeah. And then sometimes I was just like, "Give me that. I'm on the right track." <laughs> and then sometimes I was like, "Oh right, yeah, very good. Okay, wind energy, lovely." So Sport Ireland, and then who's at the National Archives? Get a pencil. Oh yeah. Well, that's good because we all make mistakes, right? Yes, yes. yes we can, we can and we can. Unfortunately, in life, you can't erase them all. Meanwhile, Maura Duran, her last week at nine, and a revelation. I am so into ASMR. Oh, do we need to know? Consenting adults and all that, but... Oh, sorry. It's this. It's autonomous sensory meridian response. And basically what it means is a tingling feeling you get when you hear a certain sound. For me, it's like praying. I remember years ago when I was a child and if you're at mass and afterwards I remember the older women used to say the rosary maybe in an evening after an evening mass and I would sit and listen to it in whispers. Now they'd say it in a whispering tone they, you know in that way. So that's ASMR. So it's whispering. Some people like this. Listen to this. That's crinkling of paper. People love listening to that. So if you go on YouTube they are ASMR artists who are making Millions, literally, from this kind of stuff. That's ASMR. And this. Good morning. You're very welcome to the show. And then they tap the microphone like this. I'd like to tell you a story. We don't think so. A bit creepy. Back in a bit. Welcome back. All week long, serious questions into spinal surgeries conducted at Temple Street Children's Hospital. On Monday, the HSE published the results of an internal and external review into surgeries for patients with spina bifida. They showed poor surgical outcomes and the use of unauthorised implantable devices, leading to another review. On the news at one, Damien McCallion, Chief Operations Officer with the HSE, spoke to Gavin. What's happened at Temple Street? So essentially we're commissioning this review following, as you said, a number of serious surgical incidents 
staff in Children's Health Ireland first noticed these concerns and that triggered an internal review, which is part of what we've published today. That was supported by an external review, and both of those reports have been published by Children's Health Ireland today. As a result of that, those reviews highlighted a number of serious issues. These were areas like wound complications after surgery, where metalwork had to be removed, which is part of this complex surgery, and higher level infections. There are 19 children impacted by this. All of those, I should say, in the first instance have been contacted because I'm conscious there will be families and parents perhaps worried are their child encompassed within this review. So all of those have been contacted over the last number of weeks and have had disclosure in relation to their particular child. Tragically, one of those children passed and, and deceased and there's been a lot of contact with that family. That's subject to investigation and forms part of this review. Uh, secondly, there was a child who had very serious complications. Then there were three children who had an unauthorised device, non-certified, used in the procedure. And then a variety of complications, which are the 19 children that are impacted here. All of those form part of the review. All of those Children's Health Ireland have given full disclosure over the last number of weeks. And they're all either clinically follow-up to where appropriate already or there's another clinical review being scheduled over the next week to try and consider what other impacts and maybe needed care for those children as well. By Thursday, we would know that those unauthorised devices referred to were uncertified surgical springs. And again with Gavin on the News at One, Children's Health Ireland Clinical Director, Dr Ike Okafor. What were they? Uh, they were springs. And w- what did they do to the patients who got them? So we're not sure. And um, can I first of all say that there is a lot of uh, false information circulating in social media um, around uh, uh, these springs. Um, there is currently an investigation in place to look at the process around how they were procured and how they were used. Were they all removed? Uh, two have been removed and one is still in place. How did unauthorised, uncertified devices end up in an operating theatre at CHI? Again, we are um, investigating this um, and there is an external um, group that is going to look at this um, and we have to wait until we, um, until they submit their findings, I believe. Where did the devices come from? We were made aware, yes. And was anyone in CHI made aware that the surgical technique using springs in this small patient cohort was being tried? There were people in CHI who knew that this uh, that these springs were being used. And again, it's going to be part of the investigation. The information came to us uh, end of June, early July, um, and that's how we became aware that there were none authorised. And all week long, advocates and families for people with spina bifida expressed their anger, frustration and concern. On Drive Time, Cormac spoke to Amanda Coughlin Santry, co-lead of the Spina Bifida and Hydrocephalus Paediatric Advocacy Group. Because while these reviews are taking place, their children are still waiting on life-changing surgeries. You say you want transparency, which is quite clear why. You also said you want accountability. What does that look like? Accountability to us looks like, like we're we're very very sick of the apologies. Like we've had apologies from the Minister for Health, we've had apologies from the previous Minister for Health, we've had promises. What I want is accountability. I want some governance. I want them to take 
responsibility for monitoring the situation. Like we were promised real engagement. We were promised that the 19 million euro that we fought desperately for was not going to go into a black hole. When we raised our concerns that was been spread too thinly across CHI in April 2022, we were told that won't be allowed to happen. You real engagement. We are going to fix this. We are going to make things better for these children. That didn't happen. When we raised our concerns about the the level of work being done and the post-operative complications, we were told, we are on this. We've had no engagement since June 2022. And these children are in a worse situation now because one one hospital is no longer going to be performing surgeries and we've lost a doctor. Okay, look. From drive time. On the dock on one this week from Michael David McKernan and Nicolin Greer, Act 5, Scene 2. If you know your helmet, and we know you do, this is the fight scene bought for actor Connor Madden. Playing that scene would change his life forever. This is too heavy. Let me see another. This likes me well enough. These foils have all the length. They are real swords. That's the scary thing. They're solid steel rapiers, basically. No flex. Um, their swords are thrusting, they're blunted, they're not sharp, but they're solid steel. They're hard, you don't want to get hit by them. With stage combat like that, you want it to look impressive while being incredibly safe. At the time he wrote his plays, Shakespeare's duels needed to be ferocious. Something to get the audience riled up. It was entertainment, that's exactly what it was. And it was competing with bear baiting, dog fighting, boxing, drinking, carousing, whatever. Like... It had to be like vibrant, it had to be vital, because if it wasn't, it wouldn't survive. And it was that scene, that fight, that is at the heart of this documentary. Act 5, Scene 2, The Dock on One. Now, there was a lot about time clocks and watches on the radio this week. And sure, why wouldn't there be? We pretty much invented it. Did we start time in Ireland and keeping time? And you, Grange, tell us about that. Yes, well, the first timepiece in the world, and this is recognised by all horologists in the world, was actually created in Ireland in just outside Drogheda uh, in Newgrange uh, 5,000 years ago. So it's, it, it's universally accepted, even in the Museum of Horology in Switzerland, that it was the Irish that created the mechanisms for... Uh, measuring the measurement of time, which is the, what horology is all about. And you're talking uh, about Newgrange, of course, the monument where the light streams yeah. in on the shortest day of the year. Correct. It, uh, since uh, COVID, we've discovered it actually comes in uh, a lot more than just the 21st of December. It actually comes in 16 days either side of it. And that's actually reinforced the whole proof that it is actually, it was designed as a, uh, as a measurement of time. Uh, so effectively, it's the world's first timepiece. And that was followed on about a thousand years later by the sundials. So it's a wonderful claim to fame that the Irish have. That's Des Grant, who runs a walking tour called The Clockmakers of Drogheda. And while he was keen to highlight the Irish history of watchmaking, with the Darcy, our arch rivals in horology, the Swiss. And Andreas Strahler, who will be attending the magnificently named International Festival of Time in Waterford this weekend. And he has invented a very precise moon dial. When you, when you say precise, how precise is it? So a normal moon indication on a watch has a precision or imprecision of one day in two and a half years. And I create... That means it's, it's out one it's day. It's just offset by a day yeah, after uh, two and a half years. Okay. 
And uh, so I created the gear, which has just gears, just four wheels. The selection of the of the gearing was uh, that I have the error of one day only after two million years. Wow. You must feel good about yourself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's, that's our hands on the hips moment, isn't it? Looking back at that. <laughs> <laughs> Look what I've done. Look what I've done. But like, uh, lads, it's 25 past four. That's all you really need to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can almost hear them bristling from here. Tension. But not to be outdone, this week we had the National Timing Grid. Time that is accurate, stable and to the second. You didn't know you needed it, but you do. David Fleming from the National Standards Authority of Ireland. He is Technical Manager for Time. A superb title. We are underpinning a network of atomic clocks around the country uh, to provide a robust uh, timing infrastructure for the country. What's an atomic clock? So an atomic clock, this is what the international timescale is based on, a cesium atomic clock. So essentially a, a cesium atomic clock defines what one second is. But as you might expect, the newsroom, perfect. Now, I'm looking at your website. This is ntg.ie, the national timing grid. And the time on it to the second is exactly what I have on the studio clock, exactly what I have on my computer. Um, and I'm hoping it's the same on all the other devices that are here in the newsroom. Uh, how does that work? Okay, well, that's kind of, it's the IT infrastructure behind that that makes sure that they're all the same. But uh, essentially, um, you are linked into a thing called NTP pool. The cesium atomic clock in my laboratory is actually available on the internet and it's there for use for people to syn synchronize their uh, computer systems, etc., to that particular clock. And this is down to the nanosecond. There can be drift, but the drift in these clocks it can be something like, I think it's it's one second in something like 200 million years. But at a granular level, um, in terms of nanoseconds, it is very important for the likes of kind of power companies, etc., to um, have a, um, a very accurate atomic clock behind the scenes, essentially running all of their systems. Why? Why does everything have to be in sync? Yeah, Gavin, stick it to the man. But everything needs to be in sync because we are so reliant nowadays on technology, etc. Timing is one of those fundamental um, fields in the background that allows everything to kind of uh, run in harmony, essentially. Hard to fight that one. Well, that is it from this week's Playback. Thank you for listening. And if you were out and about last night for Culture Night, hope you enjoyed these guys. You vagabonds. Talk to you next week. The roughy lads, the buffy lads, when they get fit, they're seeking a pack of kisses, a gag and a mist, and leave the lassies. Rain.